0: A really warm welcome to Episode 67 with Kevin Robert Frost, CEO of the American Foundation for AIDS Research.
1: Even if I didn't have HIV, I wasn't an innocent bystander. And I couldn't just stand on the sidelines and watch this thing unfold without trying to do something. And where you have fear in a society, what you get from that is hate. What you get from that fear is bad politics. And what you get from that fear is stigmatization and marginalization and ostracization of different communities. In this case, it was largely the gay community that became the target.
0: Papa Steve podcast speaking with social
1: entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place
0: here's your host mark longbottom everyone welcome to perpsky kevin thank you mark appreciate it you are the ceo of amfar what's its mission and vision
1: well the mission of amfar is to end the global aids epidemic through innovative research We are, at our core, a biomedical research foundation. That's what we were set up to do, to raise funds in support of biomedical research. And we were created at a time when there was almost no funds available for AIDS research. Uh, And so we were giving out some of the very earliest research grants to try to understand what was happening, what was this new disease that was emerging. I'm talking about, this goes all the way back to 1983, and our vision really is an AIDS-free world, right? It's, it's how do we get to an AIDS-free world and an HIV-free generation? Um, to do that, you really need two things. You need a vaccine that prevents people from becoming infected with HIV, and you need a cure for people who are already infected with HIV. And that's really our goal, that's our vision. It's quite simple and straightforward.
0: You've been involved for a really long time. Um, so you joined Amfar in the 90s, early 90s, uh, and became the CEO in 2007?
1: That's correct, yeah, I did. I had been involved prior to joining Amfar. I was an activist here in New York with an organization called Act Up, uh, which was one of the early organizations, a group of folks who were fighting to try to make things better. And uh, I joined Amfar in 1994, uh, as an administrative assistant, and then sort of worked my way, you know, up the ladder, and eventually became CEO in
0: 2007. And what did HIV and AIDS mean to you at that time?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I had been living in Texas. I went to the I went to college at the University of Texas in Austin. I graduated in 1985. Shortly after, uh, on Valentine's Day of 1990, I moved to New York. Now, while I was living in Texas in the 1980s, we certainly knew about. The AIDS epidemic. We heard about HIV. You know, I, I was a gay man. I was an out gay man in college. And so um, we had read about this new sort of strange emerging disease. But to be honest with you, it was a disease that was affecting gay men in New York and gay men in Los Angeles and, and maybe a handful of other places. But it didn't seem like it was anything sort of close to home. And then somewhere around 1988, 1989, I was living in Dallas. And I went to see a production of Larry Kramer's play, The Normal Heart. And a friend of mine named Mark Torres was starring in the, in the play. And it really had an impact on me. It really woke me up to what was happening in these places, which seemed like faraway places, New York and L.A., uh, in a way that I hadn't understood prior to that. And I in, almost instantly realized that as a gay man – Even if I didn't have HIV, I wasn't an innocent bystander, and I couldn't just stand on the sidelines and watch this thing unfold without trying to do something. Um, So shortly after that, I moved to New York. My, My undergraduate degree was in music, and I moved to New York because I wanted to be a musician. This was my life's plan, was to become a musician. And for a while, I did that. Uh, I moved to New York City. I got an apartment in the village. In fact, I was living in my friend Mark's apartment because he had lived and worked in New York as an actor for years. I was living in his apartment in Chelsea. And like the first or second day I got here, I went and got a job at Tower Records in the Lower East Side. There was a big Tower Records store at 4th Street and Broadway. I got a uh, job working in the classical music department because my degree was in music, so I knew classical music really well. And late one night, like like eleven thirty at night. It was the tower was open twenty-four hours a day in those days. And so it was very late at night. Larry Kramer himself walked in and he was looking for some opera recording that he was interested in. And so at some point I sort of sidled up alongside him and I said, How can I help you? And he told me what he was looking for. And so I took him over to the right section and we started looking for what he wanted. And I said to him, Listen, I just wanted to tell you that I saw your play, The Normal Heart a couple of years ago and it really had an impact on me Hmm. and Larry being Larry looked at me and said oh really then what the expletive insertive are you doing about it (laughs) wow and I was yeah you know here I am this kid from Texas just moved to New York City and he says what are you doing about it and I think he could see the look on my face uh because he said listen if you're serious about doing something about it, there's a group of us that get together on Monday nights over at the Gay and Lesbian Center in the Village, and it's and it's called Act Up. You should come. And so the next Monday night, I went to my first Act Up meeting, and that was it. I stayed, uh, and I realized that um, you know I needed to do this. This was part of of what I needed to do as a person. And I never there was never a time in my life when I decided to stop doing music. And just work on HIV/AIDS, but the work became all-consuming. And before I knew it, here I am 30 years later.
0: And go back to that time, there was a lot of hate, I would best describe. To, you know, there was a lot of politics, homophobia, all played into, you know, making things worse. Like, take us back there in terms of what was going on, you know, in New York.
1: Yeah, I think, Mark, it can best be summarized by saying there was a tremendous amount of fear. And where you have fear in a society, what you get from that is hate. What you get from that fear is bad politics. And what you get from that fear is stigmatization and marginalization and ostracization of different communities. In this case, it was largely the gay community that became the target of that Um, hate and isolation and fear and policies, bad policies that were created or were tried to be being created. And it's difficult to describe because the fear existed everywhere. I mean, I was afraid, uh, you know, because it felt like as a gay man at that time, we were all going to get this disease. We were all going to die. And, you know, the statistics were pretty startling you know, about the predictions about the number of gay men who would ultimately become HIV positive. Now, that changed really in 1985 when the CDC came out and said condoms work. If you wear condoms, you can prevent the transmission of HIV. And, And I think gay men adopted a very sex positive but condom friendly attitude towards sex. And we began to see new infections fall. And that really sort of changed the course of the epidemic for a while. But it was a very scary time, and it was hard to describe. When I moved to New York City, I moved on Valentine's Day of 1990. And I remember feeling like I had been dropped into a war zone. I came here thinking I was going to be a musician. And I arrived, and I moved into an apartment in Chelsea, uh, which is just above the village. So it was very much sort of the gay center of New York. It felt like a war zone. You could not walk down the streets of Greenwich Village <clears throat> and not see the sick and dying all around you. They wore the scars of Kaposi sarcoma, which was a, a cancer that created purple splotches on the skin. You could see this everywhere. You could see men in their 30s wasting away, mm. looking like they were starvation victims. It was impossible not to see what was happening all around us. Hospital wards were overflowing. Young men who were literally dying in the hallways of hospitals because they couldn't get beds and their families wouldn't take care of them. It was a, it was a surreal, very, very different time um, and not a particularly good one. You know, in our history. Yeah. Uh, But we climbed out of it. We managed to climb out of it because we had the extraordinary support. I mean, gay men came together in an extraordinary way. We were often led by the fiercest and smartest of lesbians who were so much more uh, intelligent and mature than we were. They had come through their own battles over the years and we found our way out. We found our way out and led ourselves to a better time.
0: Tell me about the involvement of um, Dr. Matilda Krim and also Elizabeth Taylor. They played fundamental roles, didn't they?
1: They did. Um, It's very interesting. So AMFAR, the organization I work for, the Foundation for AIDS Research, was actually born out of two organizations. Here in New York in 1983, Dr. Matilda Krim and a group of scientists, doctors really, who were working in the village, who were seeing gay men with these diseases, particularly a man named Joseph Sonabend, who was really the first to flag what was going on in, in in the gay community in New York and really start to form a research effort around it. Joe knew Matilda Krim, and in a chance meeting one day, they ran into each other at Sloan Kettering, he started describing these cases to her, and they agreed that what we needed was a research network. That was, that was back in 1983. 1985, on the West Coast, there was a man named Michael Gottlieb, who was a doctor at UCLA. He was, in fact, the first person to describe the AIDS syndrome uh, in a seminal article that appeared in the New England Journal. He was working with Elizabeth Taylor at the time, and they were starting to form an organization on the West Coast called the National AIDS Research Fund. Elizabeth was involved, of course, because her good friend, Rock Hudson, had AIDS. Yeah, of course. Rock would eventually die of AIDS, and he gave $250,000 to AIDS research, which at the time was a tremendous sum of money. Dr. Krim in New York, heard about what was happening on the West Coast. She heard about the formation of this group on the West Coast. And she said, listen, we don't need a West Coast organization and an East Coast organization. We need one national research organization. And so late in 1985, there was a meeting held between the two organizations and a decision was made to merge and form a new organization out of these two. And that new organization became AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research.
0: And so clinical trials began?
1: Clinical trials came later. You know, it was very difficult to start clinical trials. The U.S. government, which is primarily responsible for clinical trials in this country, the government and pharmaceutical companies, of course, who are developing products. The agency at the NIH that was responsible for HIV-AIDS was a very small institute called the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. It was led by a man named Dr. Anthony Fauci, a name that everybody knows today, Yeah. but you know, 40 years ago, nobody had heard of. He was a young scientist from New York who had been tapped to head this agency, and it was a small agency with very little resources. Now it's, of course, a $30 billion agency. It's a very different place, but then it was small, and they had very little money, and they couldn't start research programs, uh, and they didn't have desks, and they didn't have staff, and they were trying to get things allocated. So in the very early days, it was community-based doctors like Joe Bend who were leading the research effort. They were starting research studies right out of their offices and trying to figure out what was going on. And that's where Amfar stepped in to start funding these community-based programs to get us answers as quickly as we could. Eventually, you know, the US government ramped up their programs. And of course, pharmaceutical companies started developing drugs like AZT and other things that all came later but in those early days it was a real struggle a real fight to get research going and it and not, and if not for these extraordinary community doctors who came together to band together to try to find answers you know there would have been nothing available to treat patients
0: how does a a musician sit comfortably at a a research charity. How how have you been on? What's that like? You know,
1: I suppose there are people who tell you it's a rather uncomfortable fit. I like to think the reason I ended up being CEO here was because I hung around long enough. They didn't have anybody else to give it to. I like to think that I brought a certain activist mentality to the organization that fit well with a board of directors that didn't want to do things the same old way. They wanted to have an organization that was willing to take chances. And most importantly, I think, they were prepared to be wrong and they were willing to fail. And what I mean by that is oftentimes the research organizations like the NIH and particularly pharmaceutical companies are very risk averse. They're unwilling to take risks that end in failure because if you're a drug company, of course, you've got huge financial stakes. If you're uh, the, you know, the U.S. government, the National Institutes of Health, well, you've got to report to Congress and, and, and you're worried about your funding streams. At Amfar, we were raising money from the general public, but we were honest in telling them we want to fund research that's on the edge because we're looking to change the game. Right? We're looking to move the needle in significant ways, and that meant willing to fail. We were willing to fund ideas that ultimately didn't succeed in search of the one idea that would, mm. and I think our 40-year track record has proven us right in that some of the most important breakthroughs in the treatment and prevention of HIV and AIDS has happened as a result of Amfar contributions, and so I think... I came in as an activist with an activist mentality and fit in an organization that was willing to take risks. So even though I'm not a scientist by training, I think the last science course I took was a freshman biology course when I was in college. (laughs) What I did bring to it was an understanding of how to get answers and how to push for answers. And that meant challenging people, not just in the scientific community, but in the political community, in the funding community, willing to push them to say, let us take chances, make a bet on us, and we'll prove you right. And and I think we've, we've succeeded. Now, we're a long way from declaring job well done, believe me, we don't have a vaccine yet, and we don't have a cure that works for everybody, but every day we get closer, and there are three people who've been cured so far, and that's up from one person a few years ago. So we're moving in the right direction. Um, and and I do believe that with the right investments and, and and a smart sort of intelligent research strategy, that we we can have a cure for this disease. We could have it in our lifetime.
0: Yeah, and just reflecting on your activism, so I saw a guest recently who described activism as um, someone who's or an activist as someone who is happy to. Um, remove themselves from the outcome so you don't necessarily end up getting the outcome you want from being the activist you are are you comfortable sometimes being unpopular saying difficult things um getting people's backs up like tell us about your activism where it came from
1: i'm not really sure uh where it came from because i grew up my father was in the military and uh he was a lifelong military man he was in the air force and i was an air force brat i i was born in north africa in Libya, because there was a military base there that had a maternity ward. In the military lifestyle, you're not taught to challenge authority. In fact, quite the opposite. You're taught not to challenge authority. You don't question an order. It's an order. And my father sort of ran the house that way. He was a very strong disciplinarian. You don't question authority. Um, You know, you do as you're told. Uh, When when he says jump, you say how high. But somewhere in that process, and it's probably DNA, right? It can't be the environment or anything. I was a rebellion. And I think I rebelled first because internally I knew I was different in in the sense that even though I couldn't articulate it, I knew I was gay. Um, And I came out at a very early age. I mean, I told my parents by the time I was 15, I had told my parents that I was gay. And of course, you know, that was quite shocking to them. This We're talking about, you know, the 1970s at this point, just a few years after Stonewall Hmm. that I told my parents I was gay. I had this rebellious nature. I think it didn't really take shape for me until I joined ACT UP and I saw the example of my peers in that organization, leaders—great leaders like Larry Kramer, like Peter Staley, like Mark Harrington, uh, like Maxine Wolf—you know—people in the organization who showed me that it wasn't just okay to question authority. It was our responsibility to question authority. We had a duty yeah. to question authority. And, and if we cared about and loved the people around us, and for the first time in my life, I had a sense of community. I had a sense of people who I cared and loved that weren't my immediate family. They were my community. I had a responsibility to them to question authority, to be a voice for those who couldn't be a voice. And it was only through their example that i began to understand what my responsibilities were as an activist and i and i'd like to think that i grew into that
0: yeah coming out at that time in the 70s um very very different now of course but what was the reaction of your parents in terms of um the rejection or they actually got got over it and uh you know loves you just the same.
1: They struggled with it, to be honest with you. They struggled with it for a very, very long time. I think there was nothing in my parents' frame of reference that prepared them for an understanding of what it meant to have a gay child. Certainly not in my father's military upbringing or military work life. Um, And my mother, uh, you know, my parents, are Roman Catholics, Irish Roman Catholics. They both grew up on the lower west side of Buffalo, New York, which was a very Irish neighborhood at the time. And there was nothing uh, that sort of prepared them for a child who was not just gay, but openly gay and and proud and, and you know, simply uncompromising in my willingness to be who I was. And so... We went through a very rough period. Um, I left home. I went to college uh, at the University of Texas. I went for a number of years where I didn't speak to my parents. But eventually, as America's attitudes changed, and the AIDS epidemic had a lot to do with that, my parents' attitudes changed, and they began to soften. I have funny stories, which I won't bore you with now, about how their attitude softened, and the first time I came home with a boyfriend, and all of that. But oh, tell us one. Tell us (laughs) one. Well, uh, you know, it was very interesting. Eventually, my parents did ask me to come home, which I did. I told them I had a boyfriend. They asked me to come home with my boyfriend. And I brought him home because my sister was getting married, and I told them I wanted him to come to the wedding. And they said, yeah, that's okay. But when we got to the house, my mother put us in separate bedrooms. Uh, You know, you're going to sleep here, and your friend is going to sleep in this room. Okay, I get it. Well— that went on for just a very short while. And then I remember after a year or two, we came home again, to stay with mom and dad and and my dad had already gone to bed and my mom was in the living room waiting for us because we'd gotten in quite late. And um, she got up after we, you know, chatted for a little while, she got up and got ready to go to bed. And she turned to me and she said, you boys sleep wherever you like. And she went down the hall and went to bed. And I looked at my boyfriend at the time. And I said, Does that mean what I think it means? Yeah. And he says, no, I don't think it does. We've always had to sleep in separate rooms. I said, I'm not so sure. I think that might mean what I think it means. He's like, no, no, no. So I got up and I went down the hall to my parents' bedroom. I knocked on the door. I opened the door just a little bit. It's completely black in there in my mom's dad in bed. And I say to my mom, Mom, you said we could sleep wherever we want. Did you mean that? She said, yeah, yeah. You boys just take whichever room it is you want. And I said, so we're going to take— my brother Terry, said, we're going to take Terry's room. She said, yeah, that's fine. The two of you take that room. And it was like that was the moment yeah. where suddenly, you know, I realized my parents had come to terms. Yeah. They had They had accepted who I was. And I think um, before my father – a beautiful moment in many ways. It was. It was incredibly moving yeah. and it was incredibly touching. And when I had moved to New York and I was involved with ACT UP um, – I know my parents were very worried about me. I was getting arrested all the time at these demonstrations and my father took a week off from work and came to New York and stayed with me. I had a little studio apartment down in the village on Bank Street at the time. And he wanted to know, he wanted to see firsthand what it was I was doing. He wanted to understand it because he was worried. And I know my parents were worried about me, about the AIDS epidemic, about me getting AIDS, Uh, but also because I was involved with this radical activist organization and they knew I was getting arrested and they were concerned. He came and he actually went to a couple of demonstrations with me. Wow. Um, And he stood on the side and watched as we demonstrated. Uh, George Bush was president at the time Mm -hmm. and he came and stood and watched me do these demonstrations. And then uh, one night Larry Kramer was doing a book reading in the village and my dad came to the book reading and Larry and I and my dad went to dinner together afterwards, and my dad and Larry were about the same age. And I will never forget uh, to this day that when he got ready to leave and go to the airport, he said, "He said I can't tell you how, how proud I am. He said, I, I had no idea what all of this was about, and I'm leaving here a better person for it, and I'm really proud of the person you've become. Mm. And uh, I carry that with me to this day. It meant everything to me.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Just wondering, are you um, you you're getting a lot of calls? Um, looking right forward to sort of 2020 and 2021, you're getting a lot of calls from people who are trying to make sense of uh, this coronavirus and the pandemic? Because you're well-placed, right? Um, to, <laughs> we've, we've been here before.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. My friend Andy Velez, who was an activist with me in ACT UP, Andy died a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic took off. And when we were, you know, 30 years ago in the AIDS epidemic, Andy used to have this running joke and he used to say in different circumstances, you know, when something really crazy would happen around the AIDS epidemic, he would say, well, I'll tell you this, I'm not doing the next pandemic this way. I'm doing it a completely different way. And it was funny and we would all laugh about it because it was what was funny about it was that you only live through one pandemic. Right. Life only brings people one pandemic. And all of a sudden, those of us who are old warriors of the AIDS epidemic find ourselves living through a new epidemic. And I got to be honest with you, Mark, it's been very difficult to watch because so many of the lessons that I thought we had learned, that I thought we'd learned as a country, that I thought we had learned as a people, I thought our politicians would be smarter for Turns out we didn't really learn those lessons, mm. and it's been very hard to watch this epidemic unfold, knowing that it could have been prevented. Right? It didn't have to play out this way. Um, there are things that we could have done better, and if we'd had the kind of political leadership that we as a people should have had, um, I don't think we would have found ourselves in the situation that we do find ourselves in. There's 700,000 Americans dead. Mm. From from this COVID epidemic, more than seven hundred thousand. It's just staggering to think about that. That in eighteen months, seven hundred thousand Americans died. There have been a lot of us who have gotten back. You know, we like to say we got the band back together, activists, because um, we started a weekly call um, where a bunch of us would get on and talk about what we needed to do in the face of this and how we could move the government and how we could move New York State and all those things. Um, and there's not a little amount of deja vu going on.
0: Yeah, but And the politics playing a huge part again.
1: Sadly, yes, there are there are politics playing a huge part. And, you know, you don't have to look very deep to see how that's playing out. It's not playing out well in places like Florida and Texas, where, where politics are clearly driving the response to the epidemic and not public health. And that's unfortunate because people are needlessly dying as a result.
0: Yeah, which is tragic. And as we head towards wrapping up, under my understanding, sort of in the 90s, uh, combination therapy came along for HIV. Suddenly, HIV-AIDS wasn't necessarily a death sentence. What, where, where are we now in terms of, um, you, you, we haven't found a cure yet, but these things that we have can prevent people from getting HIV, give people an understanding where we're at now and, and also what it's like to be running your organisation um, and where your efforts are focused.
1: We've come a long way. As you rightly point out, we have extraordinary tools at our disposal, not just that prevent the transmission of HIV. We've had tools that prevent transmission for a long time. Condoms are very effective in yeah, good preventing transmission, yeah. but also things like, you know, drugs like AZT can prevent mother to child transmission. We've known that and we've improved on that a lot over the years. What's extraordinary now is that we also have drugs to prevent the acquisition of HIV, which is to say a person who's HIV negative can take drugs that will prevent them from getting HIV. That's called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. We have tremendous amounts of knowledge, obviously, that we've gained over 40 years about how to address the epidemic, who are the people at risk. Um, But that being said, we don't have a cure yet, and we certainly don't have a vaccine. Um, And so there's still so much work to be done. But to get to the second part of your question, You know, this is a very challenging time for an organization like ours. There's no question that the COVID epidemic has set back the fight against HIV AIDS, right? In some ways, the research that we are focused on has become less of a priority in the minds of people because HIV AIDS has become, certainly in a place like the United States where you have access to medicine and doctors and everything, it's become a chronically manageable disease, Right. A person who's 20 years old today and gets HIV, if they have access to doctors and medicine, can expect to live a long, normal, healthy life. Um, <clears throat> whereas somebody who gets HIV in a, in a developing country probably doesn't have access to the same level of care, maybe doesn't even have access to medicines. Getting HIV is still a death sentence. At the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, the HIV AIDS epidemic is a huge burden on our healthcare systems around the world. And so our goal remains the same, to live in a world free of HIV, to live in a world free of AIDS. And that requires, as I started this conversation and before, it requires two things, a vaccine and a cure. We are laser focused on finding a cure. That's where our organizational focus is. But it's become harder in this environment to do that. Uh, it's harder to raise money. It's harder to get people's attention refocused on this work particularly uh, because it is less of a priority when you've got a pandemic like COVID around. Um, But that being said, I am seeing signs of people refocusing their own visions, right? People are understanding, beginning to understand that we're not going to be able to eliminate this COVID pandemic. We're going to have to learn to live with COVID and we're going to have to figure out how to do that and do it as safely as possible. Mm. And that means also returning to our other priorities, things that are also important in our lives. And so we're starting to see signs of that. And I think that's good because we do need to recognize that all these other things happening around us also require parts of our attention and resources and all those things.
0: What about for yourself in terms of, you know, you've been with them for a long time and you've led the organization and really well back to doing a bit more music for you uh, in the future or what's the, what does the future look like for you?
1: I hope so. I think, you know, it's not, it wouldn't come as a surprise to anyone here for me to say publicly that I, I see myself as in the twilight of my career here at amfar nearly 30 years and certainly more than that in the fight against aids nearly 35 years i have managed throughout that time you know to remain hiv negative which is only to say that despite being hiv negative i've always believed this was still my fight right this was as much my fight as it is the person with hiv i was fighting for my community for my friends Mm. um and for myself uh, cause I, there was always a part of me that believed, um, I was fighting for myself too, that eventually, you know, I would find myself infected with HIV and I, and I needed to fight for that. But I am approaching, um, I think the twilight of that. And there are other things I want to do. I have a family, I have, uh, twin boys that are seven years old and, um, I'd like to be able to spend more time with them as they go through their formative years. I also would like to do more music um, than I've done. And I have other interests in life and things that I want to pursue. And I think I'm approaching a day when I can walk away from this work and feel like I made a contribution that I can be proud of. Mm. And hopefully that will be enough.
0: Yeah. I'm on, uh, it's actually on Instagram. I've, follow a page, a site on A's Memorial site and photos coming through on a on a daily basis of all these really young, mainly men who are in the prime of their life and were taken too soon. And it really rammed home the kind of tragedy of it. And, and I guess, you know, for that to drive your work and to see it through is incredible so um, well done on that and I think to get a cure to sort of end this before you hand over the the mantle would be good right and, and I think any organization if they can um cease to exist <laughs> that should be the you know the sort of the, the hope of many charities certainly, certainly research charities or medical charities um so yeah well, well done on that and um thank you for joining me Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, sir. That was brilliant. I hope it was good. Yeah, really good. I yeah, it was just this because I I've worked um, previously. So I uh, when I was at um, came out of university, did a sociology degree, and um, I wanted to work with children around post-trauma. Mm. But they hadn't. They got some funding. They hadn't got sorted, and they said, look, like, in the meantime. We're going to have to put you on a placement where do you want to go and uh they they put me in a residential it was like a respite center but it was a res- residential house and it was supporting men who were dying uh and others who just come in and need some time out and they has some medical traumas going on um so it was an hiv residential unit and this is kind of i was in my early 20s and um just it was just hardcore like it was it was tragic um and I remember I nursed a guy to his to his death and it kind of I guess the bit that really connected me and I went on and had jobs at Terence Higgins Trust um New Zealand AIDS Foundation um what what kind of connected me to it, I guess on a personal level was that it's I just I really got angry about the politics of it. Yeah. And, and people ha- people had to deal with the stigma as well as this god-awful disease. And that's the bit that really got me and fired me up and kind of connected me to it.
1: You know, it's interesting. I went to a book reading last night. A friend of mine, Peter Staley, has written a book about his years as activism. And he was doing a reading last night. And I got there a little bit late. So I was standing in the back of the room and I was standing next to this rather young woman who – looked college age, maybe a little like she had come out of college. And we started chatting just sort of casually. And then I asked her, I said, well, what brings you here tonight? And she said, oh, I am writing a paper for my graduate degree about ACT UP, about the activist organization that I was a part of. And um, I've been working, she said, as a volunteer for 3 years at the Lower East Side needle exchange the syringe exchange program you know where they where they give clean needles to to addicts in order to prevent you know disease transmission and i was i was kind of blown away by that to be honest with you because You know, when I moved to New York, New York was a war zone. HIV, AIDS was everywhere. You could see it all around you. And as a gay man, it was easy for me to say, oh, I get it. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not an innocent bystander. I have to do something. But here's a young woman who seemingly has no connection Mm. to the epidemic in the way that I did, Uh, doesn't, isn't looking at it as a war zone. And yet she has still chosen to somehow be a part of this fight, you know, to be a part of the struggle in the same way that... You sort of had no connection to this person yeah who who you you know mm. took care of and nursed through death and suddenly you become part of the struggle and I'm just I'm so impressed by that because I had stimulus around me that kept knocking on the door saying, "Hey idiot yeah get out there and do
0: something yeah.
1: Um, and young people coming into it today, I'm just, I'm very impressed by it. I really, really am.
0: It's personalizing, it, I think, often, isn't it? And don't you see the kind of some of the crap that people go through, it fires you up. And um, I love the fact that you're an activist. I think this should be, And I've kind of, it's taken me a long time in my life to realize that it's absolutely crucial that, we continue to be activists oh yes especially I think as you get older and like I'm, I'm just turned 50 and you realize that actually blindly following people is not the, the way and people shouldn't blindly follow me either as in it's becoming a bit of more of an elder statesman <laughs> just I, I was curious and I didn't ask but um favorite music
1: that's very hard to pin down I mean I'm a classical mu- musician by training right I wanted to be uh, an opera singer Right. That was what I wanted to do. And I was trained as an opera singer in college, et cetera, et cetera. And so I do love the opera for sure. But I grew up in a house where my mom, you can make fun of me if you want. But I grew up in a house where my mother and my sisters, I had three sisters, loved the music of John Denver. Oh, I love John And so the first music I sang was John Denver. The music I grew up listening to, the songs that I first played on the guitar that my father gave me when I was 13 years old was John Denver. And so uh, there's a special place in my heart for his music. And I think there always will be just a part of who I am.
0: Me too. I love John. It's it's funny because I have gained greater fondness for you know, musicians that in the sort of seventies and eighties, I guess at the time I may have cringed about, but yeah, no, Hey, uh, peace <laughs> out to John Denver. I'll let you get back to your day. Hey, massive. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll be in touch with your team and, and um, get this out in the next few weeks, but um brilliant. I appreciate it. And I'm going to head to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I've enjoyed the talk. Take care. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.